listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, not South Carolina, although they have their own Greenville. They don't have their own East Carolina University. And I am not speaking for East Carolina University or for anyone else, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself, as we always do. Here at Civil War Talk Radio, it is, as I said in the introduction, April. It's the year 2022. April is the most beautiful month in North Carolina, the best weather of the year, uh, except for the pollen. The pollen is omnipresent. Uh, One's eyes itch, uh, uncontrollable sneezing breaks out. It coats everything. And when we get a downpour, uh, this fascinated me the first time I saw it, the, it washes it off the roof of one's house um, and, and big streams of water come down and they are yellow like melted butter pouring off the top of one's house as though it were a giant stack of pancakes. Uh, and it doesn't go down the gutters because we don't have gutters because the soil is so porous that the water just doesn't, doesn't threaten your foundation, which you don't have foundations either. I guess you have a foundation, but no basement. Uh, North Carolina is so different from, from the, the Midwest and the, the Northeast, uh, but every place is different from every place else. Uh, it is the last week of school here in uh, spring semester of 2022. Uh, it has been a challenging but uh, entertaining semester. I've been teaching the Civil War class, which I always enjoy, History 3225. We've had some good discussions, some really bright students, uh, interested students this year. There's always a couple students who take the class because it fits their schedule, they need it, but they're not history or history education majors. Uh, In this case, we've got a couple people majoring in computer science, and typically they, they drop out after the second or third class. They realize this is another language and this year uh, I was pleased to see that they decided to stick with it uh, and the two computer science students in the class are doing very well uh, and bring a different perspective than the history majors so it's interesting I guess that's why it's a university get all kinds of views uh, we had uh, our program review this semester. Every seven years, outsiders come and look at the department and tell us how we're doing, and it's a valuable exercise. But there's only so much they can tell us. Some of the things they suggest we should do are things we already do. Many of them are. Um, the uh, most interesting one reminded me of uh, my days in the Uh, museum world, we were recommended uh, to help increase enrollments, uh, teach more popular classes. Why not teach them classes in current events, for example? Well, we are in fact a history department. Uh, If we're going to just teach the most popular class, I say we should be teaching math 1065. It's a requirement. Everyone has to take math. And we'll get lots of students that way because they have to take our course. The fact that we're all completely unequipped and, and unqualified to teach math is irrelevant. Uh, the same is true for current events. But that's the kind of advice uh, you sometimes get from the, the program review. It did remind me, when I, when I worked in a museum, we would occasionally get the business people uh, involved in governance to look at our operations, and they would say, you know, you could raise more revenue from the museum store, sell more popular items, sell things people really need. Uh, so while it would, of course, cause us to lose our tax-exempt status if we sold non-mission-related items, I always said, yeah, let's just sell, like, you know, disposable diapers, half gallons of milk, cartons of cigarettes, things people run out of, and they'll come down to the museum and buy them. And eventually the IRS will bust us for that, but, you know, we'll make more money in the short run, uh, even though it has nothing to do with what we are as an institution. And so it is with teaching current events as a history department. 
why people think that's that's okay is, is beyond me. On the other hand, it's perfectly acceptable for a history podcast to sell unrelated items like T-shirts and refrigerator magnets, or so I've been told. Uh, and that's why you can go to www.impedimentsofwar.org and find out who's going to be on the show next week and also click on the link that will take you to the the merch, the, the store where you can, in fact, buy a Civil War Talk Radio T-shirt after... 17 seasons of not cashing in. I'm now uh, raking it in with the t-shirt sales. I was able to buy a uh, dinner for Mrs. Civil War Talk Radio, Dr. Civil War Talk Radio, as addressed uh, in in some of the uh, literature I get online uh, for the past month. And, And it looks like we're getting about a dinner's worth a month, which is not bad. So if you haven't got your Civil War Talk Radio t-shirt or refrigerator magnet or whatever else. I didn't pick all the options. I could have sold baby onesies. I didn't think that was, you know, Sherman on a baby shirt. I just didn't want to go there. Uh, And I could have sold uh, tank tops. We had a discussion of this earlier. No one listening to this show ought to be wearing a tank top. so, uh, so we're, you can't get those. But T-shirts, sure, go ahead and get one. Uh, it does not jeopardize our non-profit status because we don't have any. If you donate to the show, which is always welcome and much appreciated, using the PayPal button at impedimentsofwar.org, you cannot deduct it. Uh, we're just two days away from tax day. Uh, you've, you've lived clean this far. Don't commit the crime of deducting your your donation to Civil War Talk Radio now because because it's not okay. While you're at the website, though, notice that next week we'll have Gene Eric Salaker on the show. He has he wrote many years ago about the Steamboat Sultana, the great disaster you're, you're familiar with, and he's written a new book, uh, updated it, and uh, I'm very anxious to read it. We'll talk about that with him next week, the worst maritime disaster in American history. On the 27th of April, Tim Talbot, old friend of the show, comes back. He'll be talking about the Battle of Newmarket Heights Memorial and Education Association. Uh, Newmarket Heights is a battle people really should know more about, and he'll be telling us about that. And then on May 4th, Vincent Burns and his new book, Voices of the Army of the Potomac, a couple of weeks of no live shows will follow as this hallowed ground uh, tours take place. But coming back at the end of the month, uh, I'm thrilled to report, I, I just found out today that Elizabeth Leonard's new biography of Benjamin Butler will be out by the end of May and we'll have her on the show. Uh, June 1st, I believe, will be the date. Uh, Elizabeth has been on the show a couple times before, a wonderful guest and wonderful historian, and no one's written about Benjamin Butler in uh, a dog's age, so I'm really looking forward to that book, and we'll talk with her about it uh, in June. Don't forget to sign up for Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College if you haven't done so. Tell them you heard it here. Get a discount. Uh, But tonight we're here to talk about uh, the war in North Carolina. Normally, I pick up the book and read the title off in case I've forgotten it, but I've got the book on my computer electronically this week, so I have to scroll up and make sure I'm not leaving any words out. Hearts Torn Asunder, Trauma in the Civil War's Final Campaign in North Carolina is the name of the book, and uh, it's written by a friend of the show, returning uh, guest, Ernest Dollar. Uh, Ernie, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks, Jerry. It's great to be back. Well, glad glad to have you. Let me start out with a question, uh, a North Carolina question, before we get into your book. Uh, what is going on at Wise Forks? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, it seems that uh, that our, our dear friends and the Department of Transportation are trying to, to put a, a highway through most of the battlefield, and so there's a there's a sort of a ground route swell effort to try to dissuade them from destroying that part of this, you know. Admittedly, a fairly overlooked battlefield, but an important one in the North Carolina campaign. So, I think a lot of folks are trying to talk to the our, our, our leaders in Raleigh to help them sort of divert the highway from around the battlefield. Yeah, I see. There's a Facebook group, so listeners, if you're interested in, in chiming in, uh, even communicating with uh, anybody in Raleigh that you might know or might come across, uh, you can check out the Facebook page, Safe Wise Fork Battlefield. Uh, yeah, that's you've, you've said what I've heard about it pretty much, and and it does seem like another short-sighted. Uh, 
act in where where history preservation is is both good in itself and a generator of economic uh, activity too often the legislators don't don't see that uh, so you uh, you were last on the show it w- I'm looking at the date here it was nine years ago uh, March of, of 2013 wow is that not amazing um, yeah, and what is amazing. most <laughs> Our topic was the end of the war in North Carolina, and and I, I went back. I don't normally listen to old shows. I hear my own voice continuously. I hear voices in my head at all times. I don't need to hear recordings, but uh, I went back and listened to make sure we didn't just talk about the same stuff. And uh, it inter- Well, let me ask you. Did it, did it? I guess it shows it took nine years to turn those concepts you had then into a book. Uh, Tell the listeners, what takes so long? Well, you know, I, I started as a local historian getting into Civil War probably probably in the early 90s. So just collecting information and, and resources and diaries and letters and stuff. And so I actually put these together in, in a book. It was sort of a your traditional military narrative of the end of the Civil War in North Carolina. And I, I held it in my hand and I looked over at Mark Bradley's book and I was like, wow, I, I can't touch Mark Bradley's book. Because <laughs> he did such a great trilogy of North Carolina's end of the war. So... I basically had to burn down what I had written and rebuild it with a, a sort of a different slant. Mm-hmm. So it was just a, a, a haphazard, strange twist of fate that I kind of sort of off-ramped from this sort of traditional military narrative and kind of really started to explore how people felt and how the war impacted them in this sort of this last campaign of the war. The your book certainly does that. It, it looks at the war from a, a, a different angle than, than really most any other book that I've read. Uh, before I ask you about that that slant to the book, I, I wanted to run this point past you. Uh, in in 2013, when we talked about this, uh, you said, and I said, that uh, people didn't look much at this aspect of the war, the the end of the war. It, it, you know, we all know how it's going to end, and we kind of stopped paying attention to it. But last, uh, but very recently, uh, Caroline Janey published uh, a brilliant book on the ends of war, on the end of after the end of war, Lee's army after Appomattox. And, and it's taken the field by storm. And now you've published uh, what I think is a really innovative and interesting book that I hope gets a lot of traction on the end of the war in North Carolina. And they both focus on the disintegration of society, of, of the military societies, of the armies, and the civilian society. And I'm wondering if that is symptomatic of how Americans feel, that, that the... the rise of partisanship, the uh, uh, actions toward the election in, in 2020, uh, if people feel that there's a disintegration taking place, and somehow that's being reflected in Civil War scholarship. Interesting. Um, for me, yes, we all study the war, and we know so many of the epic battles and the trajectories of the war itself. And what I discovered is that, you know, our our understanding and our our interest in the war kind of dies out whenever these, these battles die out. So, you know, every mm-hmm. Civil War buff has their favorite battle, and they can talk at length about it. But we really don't talk about the men themselves and, and what happens when the war is over and how do they deal with war. And I think, you know, personally for me, I think we are starting to to understand the the effects of what are happening to these veterans who are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And certainly, mm. you know, last year as as Afghanistan that war was ending and the way it ended, uh, in talking to veterans, I heard some of the same almost verbatim lines from soldiers at the end of the Civil War. So it just seems like one of these these moments in times, these cyclical periods in history where as we as we work with these veterans who are coming back and try to understand their experience and to 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 make room for them as they try to refit back into society, we have to look back at what went on at the end of the Civil War and how those soldiers reintegrated or did not reintegrate. So I think it's just, you know, sort of this really strange 
strange moment where we were starting to really consider the aftermath of the war rather than the war itself. Now, you you write about this in the introduction, and, and the first several chapters really focus on the element of uh, of the soldiers' mental health, uh, the the you know, post traumatic stress disorder that many of them uh, show signs of suffering. That itself is, is has been controversial. Whether we should apply that term to the Civil War era. Uh, so let's start with that uh, when we come back. Let's take a short break and come back with that question, which really I think is the heart of, of what you're writing about here. So we'll be back in just a moment. We'll talk more with our guest, Ernest Dollar. His book is Hearts Torn Asunder, Trauma in the Civil War's Final Campaign in North Carolina. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America. Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Ernest A. Dollar Jr., author of Hearts Torn Asunder, Trauma in the Civil War's Final Campaign in North Carolina. Uh... Ernest, in the first section, we talked about how your work differs from a lot of traditional uh, Civil War military history in your focus on the soldiers uh, and and how they respond uh, emotionally and mentally to this uh, situation. I think it was it was. 20 years ago or more now that, that uh, Eric Dean first wrote about PTSD in Civil War context, and it was controversial at the time. Uh, what has changed uh, since then and, and since you began writing in terms of applying that concept to these these men? Sure, and you know, I, I really struggled knowing that controversy of going into this book about applying that term. To, to Civil War soldiers, and I, w- I was very careful at first to try to, you know, to to negotiate that, but the more and more I got into it, and the more I read, and the more I researched and, and documented this experience, it, it is almost the same diagnoses and same symptoms that we see in veterans today, and veterans of World War II, and, and veterans of World War One. So it was just, it, it was hard for me to, to back off of abusing that term the more I got into it. And then you, once you understand how, how the medical doctors, the, the Civil War doctors, tried to really find up with their own term for what's going on in the soldiers they saw. You know, they struggled to, to throw a term at it as well, just as, as we've done with all of our wars, to find some term for this unexplained condition these soldiers are suffering with. And, you know, so, uh, P- 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 go ahead. 
Well, I'd say, tell us uh, what I mean, what is it that they that you find in these soldiers? What 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 kind of symptoms are they exhibiting? Um, well, you know, if, if, if you read these letters, that um, especially a lot of soldiers are um, they become very violent in these last days of the war. Um, they they unleash both sides. Just um, it is what I kind of call one of the ugliest chapters of the Civil War as, as the armies are moving through the Carolinas. Um, you just have so so much of the mental breakdown that soldiers see in each other. Um, they see like this total breakdown of morality in in the sides, the soldiers that surround them. Um, you know, we 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 can really confirm a lot of this behavior by looking at some of the pension records of the soldiers who are marching with Sherman, and it kind of bears out by looking at their lives after the war. That yeah, they either committed suicide or they ended up asylums or their families, their pension records talk about them having nightmares or, you know, grabbing their guns and sleeping out in the woods and chased by imaginary enemies. So it just, we just see so many of these corresponding symptoms between the past and present. It was just, it was hard for me not to sort of apply this term for readers to understand and to draw these, these, these lines from 1865 to 2015. You argue in this book uh, that, that this campaign, this final campaign, uh, moving from South Carolina into North Carolina, is in in some ways, many ways, worse uh, than earlier ones. It doesn't have the 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 big battles. There's Bentonville, of course, but there's no, uh, not on the same scale as some of the earlier ones, but. You suggest that the northern soldiers, uh, I guess we can start with them, are are hardened by this experience of marching through southern territory. Uh, Sherman himself says uh, when he, that famous comment about a death of a thousand men is just a kind of morning dash, and it is well that we should be so hardened. Uh, what 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 is this hardening that you see taking place? You know, this is a this is a. You know, every soldier goes through this. This is the transformation from being a civilian to a soldier. And then as we, as soldiers get into that experience and their experiences on the battlefield, it's sort of the psychological change that, that, that people become hardened and become like numb to emotions. It's sort of like a, a, a self-defense mechanism to some way. But, you know, this is sort of what we see as, as, when soldiers encounter combat and the fear of combat, there's a, such an incredible change that happens in the human mind. It's like this this neurochemical cocktail just takes over, and it changes so much of the emotions and the, the, the physical construction of the brain uh, in, in many instances that, you know, this emotional defense takes place. And they just become fairly resistant to um, uh, being sympathetic to the enemy, sympathetic to southern civilians. So I think this is just a, a, a process that soldiers throughout time have gone through, this hardening process, just to protect their own uh, mental and moral state. For the northern soldiers, you've also got this element where they have been authorized to to forage, to to pillage, to take private property, uh, and, and you suggest this is, creates a moral crisis for a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you really boil down Sherman's march to the sea and to the Carolinas, it is perhaps the largest and most successful psychological warfare operation of the Civil War, because you know Sherman has a goal of uh, undercutting the Confederates' ability to wage war, but he also cuts down uh, the moral stamina to wage war. So if Southern civilians worry about their own survival, how can they worry about supporting the troops in Virginia? So, I mean, it is a very targeted um, move on Sherman's part to kind of undercut the morale of the southern home front. And so he sees um, these hardened soldiers because he, he tries to, to cleanse his army of, of, of those soldiers before he leaves to Atlanta that will slow him down or cannot bring this war to the southern home front. And, you know, uh, historians and American popular culture love to talk about the march to the sea. But in so many history books, 
Sherman disappears after his march to the sea. He just evaporates. Mm-hmm. But, and I think that the, the, the memory of what happened in, in the Carolinas shaped that. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's not a very uplifting story. And he's, again, some of the most awful guerrilla, down and dirty warfare takes place moving through the Carolinas. Well, that's. Uh, you, you talk about that. Uh, you mentioned the civilians that this is war on the civilians that they, they also suffer uh, uh, trauma from this, uh, from when, the the when when they're having their property taken, obviously their houses burned. That's obviously traumatic. But you point out that they also will behave in ways that they would not have done before the war. Uh, they're not just traumatized, but they will they will also lose their moral compass as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, stress. I mean, we we understand a lot of stress now on the human body more than we've ever done throughout human history. We can understand, you know, using modern medicine to look into the minds, the hearts, the bodies of how stress affects people. We have to imagine that, you know, Southerners on the home front in the Carolinas, not only, and I try to bring this out in the book, is that they are suffering from four years of of privations, rising food costs, food shortages, and just the immense wave of grief, of death, that washes over them from, you know, from the war's first battles on up to its last, that these people are just overwhelmed with stress. And then the appearance of these armies and and kind of adding to that, it just, it breaks. It breaks a lot of people who psychologically just snap. Um, and you see some people doing things that they would never do. Um, many women who are, are attacking um, stores and trying to provide for their families or they're, they're looting Confederate depots or, you know, they are attacking Union soldiers themselves. So it is just a this entire sort of cauldron that is brewing in central North Carolina is, is just making, pushing people past a lot of their mental and moral boundaries. And you talked about the Army of Northern Virginia, and mm-hmm. that's one of the incredible things that we, we don't think about. When they arrive into this mix, it just, it's a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you've got these paroled soldiers coming south. Uh, you know, Lee surrenders April 9th, and uh, uh, Sherman is just outside of Raleigh on April 13th, uh, about to take the state capital. So, so you do have this this extra army that's no longer an army, just individuals now coming through. Uh, the Southern soldiers also have, have really almost ceased to be an army. They are. What struck me here was how they, they're no longer able to fight in an organized fashion. They, they don't have any food. They don't have any uh, organization to speak of. But when they catch individuals, they will commit individual foragers from the Union Army. Uh, they will commit violence on a scale, on, on a personal level, unknown earlier in the war. I mean, the atrocities are, are shocking. Yeah, and you know, one of the I didn't mention this in the book, but as as the Union authorities are finding more and more of their foragers literally executed by Confederate cavalrymen, it almost becomes a, a tit-for-tat executions that take place. And there's a lot of letters that go between the lines, between um, Sherman and General Justin Kilpatrick with Wade Hampton and Joseph Wheeler about you know executing prisoners. And, mm-hmm. and, and really there's a, almost like even from Atlanta on up, there is a discussion on the laws of warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, you know, they, uh, Hampton accuses Sherman of violating the laws of warfare. And, you know, there's this great debate about the ethics of waging war. And so, yeah, it's, it's, and one of the, I talk about the book that whenever the, the, the counter executions by some of the, the Union Army, that this, this, damages um, one of the fellows I talk about in the book is John A. Cundiff of the 99th mm-hmm. Indiana, who was on one of these firing squads, and it, it breaks him for after being in war for, for several years, and he he's on this firing squad that it it damages him. So, you know, in later life, he's one of these ones that suffer, is always constantly haunted by these Confederates who he believes are after him. And to imagine to be his family, to deal with these, this mental trauma from a war they can't understand, must have been a lot. And we see that in so many instances 
from from the pension records, the newspapers, and family accounts that I think it is far more prevalent of this mental damage done by the war than we than when we believe. Now, you spell this out. You 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 have a couple of chapters where you introduce us to this concept and, and show us examples in both armies and in the civilians, uh, and then take us day by day through the end of the war. I, I said Sherman's outside of uh, the city of Raleigh on April 13th. At that point, the the people in that city are are deathly afraid that they're going to suffer the fate of Columbia, uh, South Carolina. That they're going to be burned to the ground. How how why was Raleigh not burned to the ground? Um, and you know, uh, it, it's one of the watershed moments of the entire campaign is Columbia, and uh, I, I try to make this point: is that this is the moment where the the, the mental breakdown of these soldiers takes place. You know, years of combat. Um, they're in the state, the very heart of the snake pit where secession takes place, right? So they are very eager to bring destruction to it. But then, as I, as I try to bring out in the book, that alcohol plays such an incredible role in many events during this time, not only for, for soldiers who are trying to seek solace from their own horrible mental problems, but it just unlocks a lot of demons. And Columbia is the one where Sherman gambles on his men waging this war, but it's the moment where they get out of control. And this is the one thing that kind of scares the Union command, that they've lost, they've, they've lost control of the war machine they've made. Um, so when we get to Raleigh, that that image you know, brought in by refugees who are fleeing Columbia newspaper accounts, it really terrifies them that they're going to suffer the same fate. So we see some incredible heroics from North Carolina leadership to actually ride out in the midst of skirmishing to try to beg mm-hmm. for quarter for the city. And so I think Union authorities are very conscious of, of not having a repeat of Columbia. Sherman stages several reviews to try to keep his men. He reinstates military discipline. You know, they are there. He, they're all in the uniforms. Uh, the court marshals crank up. So I think that that's what has saved Raleigh. But, you know, I talk about in the book that Raleigh really teeters on the head of a pen a couple of times from really being destroyed by being something worse than Columbia. And certainly with um, the death of Lincoln, that news arrives in Raleigh, and it just sends the the emotions of these soldiers through the roof. Um, some of the most some of the most touching and most pulling your heartstrings letters I've ever read are when soldiers read about Lincoln's assassination, and they actually march on the city to burn it down. And you know it's only saved by John A. Logan. Who, who ironically is put into the Raleigh Hall of Fame for saving the city in 1865. So that's a very telling moment how, you know, the passions of these men truly get the better of them at this incredible moment. Oh, sorry, I had a momentary battery lapse there. I'm back. Um, yeah, the... the uh, the the survival of Raleigh, as you say, teeters on the head of a pin, and the news of Lincoln's death uh, is is part of this whipsaw of emotions that takes place uh, back and forth in the 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 area the the days you write about from April mid April up to the end of the month and into May. Uh, first, there's the celebration that Raleigh is captured among the Union forces. Then there's uh, rumor that Johnston is going to surrender. There's news that Lee has surrendered. Everyone's happy on the Union side. Then Lincoln's death comes, and sadness and anger follow. Then uh, Sherman and Johnston do meet, and everybody's happy, and even some of the Confederates are relieved. And then then the Sherman's terms are rejected in Washington, and we're back at war. Uh, and then, then there is a surrender. It's back and forth. Uh, uh, how they endured it really is is hard to understand. And you know that's kind of one I, I wanted to really you know lay it out in sort of a chronological day by day because I think for any reader to to kind of follow this emotional roller coaster kind of puts you in the day by day process of how these men encountered these these great events. Right? It's like you know the fall of 
of Richmond, the surrender of Lee, the assassination of Lincoln. It is, it is just an emotional roller coaster that I think speaks volumes to help us give, gain insight into what these men felt and what they thought. And so I just, you know, that's sort of the, the, the arc I posted. And, you know, whenever we, the important thing is once those initial terms are rejected um, and, and the order comes down for Sherman's men to march, uh, you have some of the most incredibly serious and angry comments by Union soldiers that, you know, now we are going to lay waste to the South, unequivocally, unrestrained destruction. And, you know, there's, there's this great debate on total war and hard war. And I really think that if these men had marched on after and would not, and Sherman and Johnson did not come back to the negotiating table, it would have been a very ugly, ugly chapter in the Civil War. It would have been a, a slaughter, I believe. So, you know, it's just fortunate that timing is everything. It, it really is. And it's time for us to take another break. So we're going to uh, step away for just a moment. We'll come back. We'll talk more with our guest tonight, Ernest A. Dollar Jr., author of Hearts Torn Asunder, Trauma in the Civil War's Final Campaign in North Carolina. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today. Today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Ernest Dollar, author of Hearts Torn Asunder, Trauma in the Civil War's Final Campaign in North Carolina. Uh, Ernie, when we talked about this topic uh, some nine years ago when you were starting this project, one of the things you mentioned was a subset of the civil population we haven't touched on yet tonight, uh, the the enslaved, if they're now the formerly enslaved. And one of the things we talked about was how difficult it was to access their views, how limited the sources were. Uh, we, of course, have the WPA slave narratives. Uh, did, were you able to find more uh, to... To, to flush out what people were thinking? Yeah, you know, that's that's a $64,000 question, is how do we understand African Americans at this incredible moment in time? And so um, rereading a lot of the WPA slave narratives, we do find so much of, of little nuggets in there. Mm-hmm. And, I, and the, the only thing that I found that really augmented this and really informed a lot of, of the shaping of the book was the opening of the uh, Dorothea Dix Hospital records. And so for, mm. for listeners, uh, Dorothea Dix Hospital was the, the North Carolina's 
State Asylum, which opened its doors in 1856. You know, Dorothea Dix was a great campaigner and came to, to North Carolina in the 1840s and convinced the legislature to, to found this hospital. So the city of Raleigh, who I work for, has purchased the hospital. Um, they want to turn into this great park. So there's a lot of emphasis to understand that history of the park. And uh, part of that is opening the, the admission records. So we have them from 1856 on up to, I guess now, uh, in 1922. So in there, we see some of the first African Americans who, who the Union Army forcibly integrated the hospital by putting some of these folks in there for treatment. And we, we catch glimpses of a little bit of the, the mental health of some of these first first African-Americans to go to the hospital and why they were put in there. And it's, it's not that much evidence, but it's, it's one of the few documents outside of the slave narratives that we've got to work with. Well, there was one other source, uh, not representative, because it's such an extraordinary individual, but someone I had not come across before, uh, George Horton, the poet. Can you talk about him? Yeah, and you know... Um, for, for, for anybody who lives in the Triangle, George Horton, George Moses Horton is an incredible figure, and he had um, he was an enslaved man who who basically rented out his time and would walk to the university in Chapel Hill, and you know uh, was was taught himself to read, but learned poetry from one of the um, wives of one of the professors. So he would just craft these poems for the UNC students to give their girlfriends and made a few bucks. But whenever the Union soldiers came in. Uh, we see an incredible synthesis take place that he would he wandered into the camp, befriended a lot of these cavalrymen who were occupying Chapel Hill, and so he would write these poems, and he was famous for just, they would throw out a topic, and he would write these poems, and so what we see are sort of the, everything from the pathos that these soldiers expressed from the battles or how they felt, and he would translate that into these poems. And at the same time, he was sort of trying to express himself on on what freedom meant. So it's just this incredible moment where we see white soldiers um, talking and going into black ears and being written by black hands and coming out in these poems. And even as he, he goes north with the Union Army, uh, Captain W.H.S. Banks sort of becomes his... Um, um, a partner and sort of helped him publish his last book. So his last book, Naked Genius, is an incredible synthesis, not only in the last days of the war, but what these Union soldiers are feeling and what these freedmen are feeling. So it's just an incredible story. And that's why I included a couple of his poems in the back of the appendix of the book. Yeah, the, his description of a, the soldier being executed uh, is, is one of them, is, is reflection on the death of Lincoln. It, it really is powerful stuff. And the idea that this self-taught uh, enslaved person could write these things uh, is, is, it just surprises me that, that he's not better known uh, uh, throughout the country, uh, uh, much less in North Carolina. The... Another element that you you mentioned more than a few times is religion. As as you talk about alcohol as a solace for troops who are suffering uh, from the stress of, of of battle or of having to do things that they they know are not not morally correct, uh, but. Most of us have read about the the revivals in the Army of the Tennessee or the Army of Northern Virginia, but you said there's there's a fair amount of revival activity in among Sherman's men as well. Yeah, and you know that that kind of I came to that decision about how religion really becomes popular after after these soldiers who who kind of do retain keep their moral compass as they watch all of this destruction and debauchery and you know unchristian like activity around them about how how they deal with um deal with that and so religion becomes sort of this this way to kind of absolve them of their sins and you know i was i was very you know, so much of this this march, is, especially from a southern point of view, gets really hyped up and gets kind of um, blown blown up about you know the evil of Sherman and all of his men. So mm-hmm. when I when I really went into this project, I really wanted to hear the Union soldiers, see what they thought and what they said, 
and yeah, they are they are a, a so many of them damn their march and what they did. And you know, one of my favorite quotes was from a, a soldier named um, Samson North, who who really. You know, talk about reaching out of time to to me, and in his letter to his right, whose wife, writing from Goldsboro, said he was thoroughly disgusted with the army. That if historians in the future would look back, they would have to gild it up to make it in a less repulsive form. I was like, wow, tell me how you really feel. Yeah, so I truly, truly think that the the feeling of these men that that religion offered them a chance to kind of to feel better about this, this, this victory that they won in the South. The uh, the idea that historians will have to cover this up is something that you, you touch on again throughout the book, that the soldiers writing in their journals is, or in their letters home, as this one did, will say, you know, we, we'll never be able to talk about this again. Uh, in fact, one other topic I, I don't want to leave out. You talk also about the ironic sadness at the end of the war as the soldiers for all that they're thrilled to be going home and not at risk of death anymore uh, they're also losing the bonds of brotherhood uh, among soldiers that uh, uh, that are, are stronger than almost any other human bond stronger than marriage in some cases uh, uh, I think of Billy Bragg's song Tender Comrade is a great expression of this uh, uh, but there, there's no there's no, there's nothing else like it, and they know when they go back to civilian life, they will never have such bonds to their fellow uh, men ever again, and they're they're sad about it that that they're leaving something that they can never replace. Yeah, and you know, I, I've never seen that in any lot of like Civil War literature that, you know, there is this this, this touching truly brotherhood that's about to be broken. You know, when when uh, Sherman's army occupies Raleigh and the end is near, um, officers get together and they form the Society of the Army of Tennessee as a, as a way to uh, to cement their brotherhood and, and the victory they've won. So even in the South, we see so after the war, you know, like uh, fraternal organizations like the Freemasons explode. Lodges are prolific in, in the post-war years. Like the soldiers, both north and south, are are looking for a way to to reclaim that brotherhood, those bonds that they've lost in war, because I think that that this serves a really practical purpose for them to have uh, a place and have people who understand that experience that they can talk to. Mm-hmm. And that's really valuable for helping them sort of like deal with the war and sort of those, those mental problems that, that followed them home. So, yeah, I, I think that, uh, that that sadness I really didn't expect to see, but it shows up in some of these diaries that these, these their fellow comrades, they've been intimate, you know, sleeping together, eating together, mm-hmm. fighting together. For, for years, it's going to be gone. So that was a little bit yeah. of a surprise to find in some of those letters. Now, the, the they can talk to each other about these things after the war, uh, as you point out in the book. Civilians, they 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 can't tell civilians about them. Civilians don't want to hear them. And you you end with the description of the monument, the Unity Monument, uh, built at Bennett Place to commemorate Sherman and Johnston and the end of the war in North Carolina, uh, which it was I think it was 1923. The monument was unveiled. Is that right? Right. Um, right. Uh, you say there it was it was not popular with a lot of people then, and even to this day, it's not. Uh, it doesn't attract crowds the way uh, a lot of other Civil War sites do. Why didn't people and want so to be part of that? Yeah, that's that's the question I asked. Yeah. So my first job out of college as a newly minted history major was working mm-hmm. at Bennett Place. And I thought, wow, at the largest surrender of the American Civil War, crowds will be breaking down the door to get into this place. Mm-hmm. But you know, working there for about 10 years, I was like, Nobody knows about Bennett Place, and why is that? Is it is it due to the the complicated terms, or is there something else kind of brewing in the background where we we as America agree that Appomattox was a nice tidy end of these two romantic, larger than life generals? 
that's where we end the war. So what about Bennett Place in this last chapter? Have we forgotten either on purpose or just by the, the fog of time? What makes this last chapter so unappealing? And, and, and so there it lies. The, uh, uh, the, the soldiers go home, this great... Uh, Biggest surrender ends. A few of them want to stick it out, like Joe Wheeler, but 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 mostly it ends, and they they don't want to talk about it. Uh, the civilians don't want to remember it. Uh, neither side wants to talk about the things they felt they had to do. Uh, as a book, I've, I I found this book really moving. Um, not a word I, I normally apply to the books uh, that read about the Civil War, but to get this insight into the emotional lives of these soldiers and civilians uh, using their own words, using their, their letters, their journals, as you do, uh, I think it does really tell us something. Uh, so let me ask another question. Where, where do you go from here? Uh, nine years in the making, do you have another project? That's a, good, that's a great word. I'm, I'm not sure if I could say that I've got another book in the works and my wife will kill me after having to live with me for this long with this one. Um, you know, uh, I, we, I'm always curious about um, as we end the war. And you know, this, this book truly had um, – it's not an uplifting book. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's so much the, the really plumbing the depths of humanity and mental illness. So um, I, I tell folks that I might be become a, a historian of teddy bears or tomatoes next, something uplifting mm. and easy. Um, I don't know. I, I've, I've done a lot of research on sort of the war ramping up in the triangle and sort of how, how people in central North Carolina, how did they commit to this war not knowing what it would outcome and what motivated them. So uh, I think I might sort of drift back to the, the front end of the war and see how how we got into this mess to begin with. Well, the, 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 as you say, this, it's not an uplifting story. It's not a happy story by any means. And I, I've shared that. I, there's a, a book on uh, suicide in North Carolina after the war. It was a David Silkenat's book, I think. Uh, sure it is, yeah. And, and I'll admit, I didn't read that book because I just didn't need more depression uh, <laughs> in, in the stuff I was reading. Uh, now, he's written wonderful books. His book on surrender is, is, is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I thought it was the best book of the year when it came out. The uh, But this book that you've written is as traumatic as the events are. Listeners, I, I want to be clear to you. I often say you'll enjoy this book. I won't say you'll enjoy because that's not the right word. You'll you'll benefit from this book, but that sounds like you eat your vegetables. Um, it, I, I feel like I'm a better person for having read this book. Uh, it, it that I know these soldiers better, and have more appreciation for what they went through, and that I, I given how much of my life I've spent studying this and teaching this, that I owe it to them to to pay attention when they say the things that you find them saying. Uh, it's not a sad book ultimately, it, it, because it's so real. Uh, so. I, I, I should let you get the last word, but we're out of time. I'm going to say, listeners, uh, read this book. You won't be sorry you did. Uh, and, and Ernest, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you again. Listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.